Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 22nd of October, 2021, and I'm doing this because I have nothing better to do. Now, last time I left you with a discussion of lipid rafts and T lymphocyte intracellular metabolism and how aging was associated with the degradation of the ability for T lymphocytes to function correctly. And this contributed to morbidity and mortality. Remember, that's what we're finishing up. Yes, I know. I plan on finishing up, but just all these other um, negotiated settlements of other things I am involved in have to be dealt with um, as well. And that includes, of course, the fully elaborating on what we talk about. So I want you to understand that your professor does not sit around and say, well, I've got this lecture series going and I know where I'm going to um, finish with. And I just have a couple of other loose ends to draw together and that's it. I don't work that way. I tend to be a kind of researcher that's always trying to look at the scientific literature and get uh, a larger understanding. And at the same time, while I cast that large net, like a neutrophil, for example, making an extracellular net in lung parenchyma cells, I'm also digging very deep. And the reason I'm digging deep is because this is authentic biochemistry. So with that introduction, let's just get right into this. Last time I was telling you about the fact that there's an alteration of the immune response in aging, and we know that this leads to an increased incidence of infections as well as hyperinflammation and unfortunately cancer. Besides that, we also get an uptick in autoimmune disorders. Now, we talked about a paper that was published way back in 2001, so that's a good 20 years ago, and actually was looking at interleukin-2 reception and the stimulation of plasma membrane cholesterol metabolism and the activation of T cells. Okay, so that's a full mindful of considerations here. But what they were looking at in this paper uh, was the JAK-STAT signaling pathway, which I know we went over pretty intensely last couple of lectures ago. And we're talking about tyrosine phosphorylation of the STAT5. And remember, we have to dimerize that STAT protein for it to function as a transcription factor. Well, this paper told us that the signaling pathway in T cells for that JAK-STAT um, required a certain concentration of cholesterol in the plasma membrane. And when you depleted it with this methyl beta cyclodextrin or MBCD, you were able to show that cholesterol content played a major role in how T lymphocytes were activated via JAK-STAT in elderly subjects. So it was discovered that the cholesterol content of T cells of elderly subjects actually uh, decreased. And this then associated with an alteration of the phosphorylation of a protein called P56, also known as LCK. And this occurs especially in T cells of elderly subjects. So the proliferation of a 
cholesterol-depleted T-cell lineage using that MBCD drug actually caused decreases in lymphocytes um, and their activation potential, okay? But you didn't see the same kind of change coming from two different cellular populations of T lymphocytes, either young subjects or old. So what this overall meant was that there is a role for plasma membrane cholesterol in the regulation of T cell receptor signaling, but it has differential effects related to aging. Okay, so this is again, 20 years ago, I understand. So it's first being examined here. And what the data in that paper showed that if you modulate plasma membrane cholesterol content alone, you cannot restore a signal transduction that normally becomes depleted with aging. That was the point. Cholesterol plays a role in the membrane. And we know it has to do with membrane lipid rafts. But remember, the other component of those rafts is ceramide coming from sphingomyelinase. And we talked a lot about that. Uh, throughout the summer, actually. So now I want you to jump ahead to a paper published in 2007. So it's a little bit more recent. And it tells us the following. It tells us that natural autoantibodies against cholesterol or cholesterol-associated polypeptides can actually be discovered and determined in the sera of many healthy individuals. But no one really understood back in 2007 what that function of those antibodies could be, because you see it in healthy people, so you're thinking this isn't an autoimmune disease. So what this paper did is in the Journal of Lipid Research, and I will again comment that uh, JLR is one of the best um, primary research uh, journals that are out there, not just because I'm a lipid biochemist, but in general, very, very well done studies in JLR all through the years. But what they did is they looked at two monoclonal anti-cholesterol antibodies. They synthesized these, obviously, in mice, and they used those antibodies to immunize mice again. Um, and then they were looking for cholesterol lit rich liposomal production once they had these antibodies. And they found that these ACHAs, remember these are anti-cholesterol antibodies, were specific to cholesterol, but also structurally closely related to the three beta-hydroxysterols, or oxysterols as I call them. And in fact, they reacted with multiple lipoprotein lineages when they tried them out in human uh, proteins. In fact, these antibodies worked against VLDL, LDL, and HDL. They found that they bound, usually with a rather low avidity, to live human or murine lymphocytes and monocyte, monocyte macrophage cell lines. But that gets enhanced, that binding, that avidity increases substantially when they give a moderate proteolytic degradation or papain digestion of the cell surface. So they're removing some polypeptide. And that means what basically what they do with papain is they're removing protruding extracellular protein domains. So cell bound now, anti-cholesterol antibodies, autoantibodies, strongly co-localized with markers of cholesterol-rich lipid rafts and KVOA. 
Remember, those are regions of the plasma membrane when there's a lot of lipid activity, high surface area. This is happening to the cell surface again, okay? And it's associated again with these lipoproteins migrating in and out of the cavioli. So it looks like also that these, looking at cholesterol-rich lipid rafts within these cell lineages, it was discovered that you could find the autoantibody marker in the ER in the Golgi, which means now we're looking at an endosomal, perhaps phagolysosomal interaction with what is being brought in through the KBOA. So in the end, the data suggested that IgG2 cholesterol could be used as a probe to study cluster, clustered cholesterol levels, for example, associated with lipid rafts in living cells. And that using that new technique, they could perhaps understand the immunomodulatory potential of cholesterol in the membrane. Okay, so these, this is all prolegomena. Now I'm going to move way forward and talk about a paper published in Nature Reviews of Disease Primers. And I want to tell you about this journal. Primers are basically like baby review articles. That's what Nature Review of Disease calls them. They don't call them baby review articles. They call them primers. So here's a paper that was published in 2019, uh, about two and a half years ago, actually. Now, I want you to keep in mind what I just told you about partial proteolytic degradation and the fact that autoantibodies could be prepared to study cholesterol and cholesterol-associated membrane wraps, and this could be transduced intracellularly to examine the endoplasmic reticulum Golgi apparatus associated with lipid graft migration. And knowing that lipid rafts are a component of T-cell aging, right? That's what I just told you in the first seven, eight minutes of this lecture. So let's look at this. This paper published in NRDP, or it'll be in the show notes, tells us the following. There is a proteinopathy known as pulmonary alveoli proteinosis, or PAP. Okay, and it's a syndrome characterized by accumulation of alveolar surfactant. Now, for surfactant, for those of you who aren't lipid biochemists, basically that's going to have as a large component phospholipid, particularly dipalmidoyl phosphatidylcholine. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment. So, this disease is characterized by building up a lot of surfactant at the alveola. And you get a dysfunction because of the surfactant buildup, associative alveolar macrophage interaction. So we have macrophages involved in the alveoli of lungs where you have this disorder that's associated with a proteinopathy. And this disorder is called PAP. Remember, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. Okay, so PAP results in progressive dyspnea, that means difficulty in breathing, right? And it comes on insidiously, and it becomes hypoxemic, and you can get respiratory failure. And with that, it's been associated with pulmonary fibrosis, and indeed, 
a high level of secondary infection with bacteria and virus. So PAP actually can exist in two different forms in terms of its um, pathophysiology. Primary PAP is basically a disruption of the granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor signaling pathway. And it can, the same PAP can also be autoimmune and it's caused by elevated levels of that GM-CSF autoantibodies. Okay, that's all part, that's part one of PAP. You can also get a hereditary, and this is due to mutations in two genes, the CSF2RA and 2RB, and both of those are just basically um, GM CSF receptor subunits. So it's all part of that same lineage. So this secondary PAP results in varying underlying conditions or comorbidities. And you get a congenital PAP, which is caused by mutations in those genes. And what that all relates to is some kind of malfunction in surfactant production. So in patients where you get pathogenesis, when it's driven by alveolar surfactant clearance, and I see this is going to be bringing in all the lipid uh, digestion processes we talked about, PAP has a prevalence of at least, um, oh, somewhere between 10 and 20 um, reported cases per million individuals when you look at men, women, and children of all ages and ethnicities. I'm reading this directly from the abstract in this paper. So it looks like it's somewhat ubiquitous, but it's more prevalent in smokers. Now, the autoimmune PAP, which accounts for more than 90% of the cases, are the ones we're talking about. So what we're interested in is why does this seem to occur in an increasing rate in aging obese population, because it does. And it seems to be linked again to this granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor mediated signaling, which involves an autoimmune modulation and cholesterol homeostasis. Okay. That's why I'm bringing this forward to you now. Now, in terms of surfactant lipids, Surfactant lipids function by lowering the surfactant tension, and um, they also affect membrane fluidity and fusion. There are surfactant, those are what the lipids are, uh, component are, and the surfactant proteins. Now, we've been leading into this because I just talked to you about GMCSF and autoantibodies and that PAP disease, okay? Follow along what I'm saying. Surfactant proteins are involved in the innate immune response. And they indeed affect surfactant bioactivity because they participate in the formation of tubular myelin. And that myelin, of course, is sphingomyelin. And so now we're bringing cholesterol and sphingomyelin. And I told you that neutral and acidic sphingomyelinase produce ceramide. And you need ceramide cholesterol at about a one-to-one -one ratio to make good bioactive mobile membrane lipid rafts bringing receptors to the surface of cells. Hence the whole interaction with the autoimmune response. So 
in terms of the surfactant lipids, I, about 40% of them uh, by molar mass are DPPC, that's dipalmidolil acetylcholine. You also get some polyunsaturated PC, and that makes up the bulk of the lipids. That's about 70%. Other lipids comprise up to about 5%, and those are going to include cholesterol. You have a little bit of plasmalogens, and then you have about 10% protein uh, and about 10% phosphatidylglycerol. So the cholesterol content can change between 5 and 10%. That's an important thing to keep in mind for surfactant um, total composition, the protein and lipids. So most of the surfactant is lipid. Only about 10% is protein. All the rest of it is DPPC, which is between 40 and 50%, polyunsaturated PC, phosphatidylcholine, and then some phosphatidylglycerol and cholesterol make up the rest. And a small amount of plasmalogen. Now, that's important, actually, that uh, plasmalogen. And we'll get into that later on in the lecture, if not today, next time. Now... We know something now about surfactant. We know something about this disease, PAP, and we know something about autoantibodies to cholesterol being associated with aging and respiratory failure. Now, a paper published in Cytometry in 2006 tells us the following. Okay, This is linking it all together for you. Atherosclerosis, of course, is a chronic inflammatory disease. And what it does when you study it is it connects hyperlipidemia of obesity, of course, there's all the risk factors associated with the hyperlipidemia with obesity, including autoimmune and hyperinflammatory disease, will be linked to the progression of atherosclerotic lesions. And what that leads to is plaque rupture and vascular thrombosis, okay? This is what causes high morbidity associated with aging atherosclerotic plaque. Now, at the cellular level, you get phagocytic monocytes. Remember, we were just talking about GMCSF being associated with macrophages at this cell-surface interaction, again, associated with the lipid raft. Now, these phagocytic monocytes are going to rapidly transform into macrophage foam cells once they're taken up into epithelia. And this is characterized by an excessive uptake of the atherogenic lipoproteins, such as LDL oxy-C. That's low-density lipoprotein oxycholesterol containing. And this is, of course, going to occur through, via receptor mediatocytosis, which I've talked about a great deal in more canonical lectures. So enzymatically degraded LDL, we talked about this last time, preferentially binds to a series of monocytes. And that gives you, and those monocytes give you the uh, uh, understanding that they are linked to the occurrence of bacterial antigen lipopolysaccharide because the same receptors are involved. In fact, the LPS receptor is known as CD14, and I talked about this last time. So you have now these enzymatically degraded LDLs and you have the oxidized LDLs. Both of them will activate complement, and so you're going to get a potent induction of foam cell formation all within now the pulmonary bed. Okay, this is where we're talking. You also have this, this protein MCP1, which aids in the process of foam cell formation 
all linked to oxy-LDL. Oxy-LDL and enzymatically degraded LDL are two um, component systems. You have a proteolytic processing of LDL, and then you have an oxidation of the cholesterol. You understand? And so ELDL and oxy-LDL preferentially obtained via an internalization of receptor-mediated uptake through those clathrin-coated pits and via the scavenger receptors that are part of the KVOI, and those end up becoming a constituent of the phagosome, which then migrates intracellularly. That's how you bring in that oxy-LDL frame. Okay? That's going to then stimulate, once it's there, sphingomyelin ceramide pathway. Now you're going to get an induction of the acid sphingomyelinase in the phagolysosome, right? This is how the whole thing comes together. So you have lipid-rich microdomains. Those are, again, are lipid rafts. And they're going to be associated now moving through from the ER to the Golgi to the, to the plasma membrane. And they are absolutely vital to understand how lipid homeostasis becomes a consequential pathophysiological response upon foam cell production in the lung, leading to atherosclerotic plaque, okay? So again, what we're going to be looking at here is cholesterol, sphingolipids, and other uh, phospholipids, including polyunsaturated and saturated phospholipids, because it's part of the surfactant in the lung. And again, that's dipalmitoyl phosphatidylcholine, okay? So the activation of the acid sphingomyelinase leads to ceramide generation, and that's in response to things like hypoxia or either bacterial or viral disease, accumulating into the vasculature of the epithelia and now endothelia of the lung pulmonary system, all associated with the aging process linked to deficiencies and alterations of the lipid profiles in the plasma membrane of the lung parenchyma cell, as well as the invading macrophage and subsequent T-cell lineages, altering the activation of those highly pro-inflammatory cell lineages into the vascular bed, subsequent to or co-migratory with the opening up of that bed because of introduction of macrophages carrying partially digested or sometimes infected cell lineages into the lung. So ceramide also, of course, can be glycosylated. We talked about that. You get glucosyl ceramide and you get lactosyl ceramide, that, that disaccharide, okay? So this all is happening in the lung. Now, I want you to go way forward again and follow me into a paper published in Cardiovascular Diabetes, okay, that journal. This paper tells us the following, okay, now just accumulate every, all the information, all the knowledge base I just gave you. Now we're going to move into some discrete description of how it all comes together. High plasma levels of LDL oxy cholesterol 
are known as a predominant risk factor for atherosclerosis. You see this all in the clinical medical literature. Now, that's not LDL-C, that's LDL-Oxy-C. So just plain old LDL cholesterol, as long as it's an LDLR receptor, it's going to function fine because you're just going to get the uptake of cholesterol and get it out of circulation. And you're not going to allow for then the movement of that LDL into macrophages forming foam cells, then generating atherosclerotic plaque in the lung and also in the cardiac system. Got all that now? High plasma levels of LDL oxycholesterol are a predominant risk factor for atherosclerosis. And as it turns out, there's a protein called PCSK9. And we've talked about this protein before. It's also known as proprotein convertase, cetylicin kexin type 9. That's the PCSK9. And it that protein itself plays a very important developmental role in atherosclerosis and therefore atherosclerotic plaque formation. So if you have PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies and they are available, one of them is evolucumab and the other is alirocumab. Okay, these are pharmaceuticals and they've been put into clinical use to decrease circulating PCSK9, that protein. Now, why would that be important, that proprotein convertase? Okay. Once again, a protease comes to play into diseases of the lung, where we heard this before. I think you can recall, but I'm not going to mention it now. Now, in addition to all of this in play, there are also small interfering RNAs. One of them is inclycerin. And the glycerin decreases hepatic production of PCSK9. That's another pharmaceutical that's been used. So why is the bio, biopharma community interested in decreasing the production of this protein? Well, now you're going to get it all put together. PCSK9 is secreted by the liver, and it actually combines with the epidermal growth factor-like repeat or EGFA domain of wait for it, the peripheral LDL receptor. And what it forms is a protein-protein conformer known as PCSK9 LDLR. It forms a complex. It becomes internalized by endosomes and undergoes, of course, a proteolytic degradation in the, in the phagolysosome. So when that happens, you get a reduced amount of LDLR on the surface of liver cells. And what that does ultimately generate a pathophysiology because you get a decrease in clearance of circulating LDL oxycholesterol. Got all that? So you have proteolytic interactions. And we know this because without that protein, and you're pulling that protein down, okay, by using either monoclonal antibodies or by using small interfering RNA, I told you about that. It's another pharmaceutical, which decreases actually the production of the protein. Ultimately, this leads then to this whole lack of interaction with LDLR. And so you still have plenty of LDLR on the surface of the hepatocyte. So you pull down LDL oxysteric cholesterol. Now, that's all known as a classical pathway. Been well described from this, again, 
proprotein convertase cellulizing kexin type 9 protein, right? Which is basically just a, a, an, an endoprotease, which causes a removal of the LDLR at the, at the liver. And that then causes an increase in serum LDL oxysterol, which increases, and then that's going to generate foam cells in the pulmonary and the cardiovascular system, leading to atherosclerotic plaque. That's a whole story here, okay? And besides all that classical pathway of that PSEK9, um, you also have to know that there's an alternative mechanism involved here because you have extra hepatic PCSK9 expression, okay? And that obviously is going to play a role in liver metabolism because what's it going to do? That protein is going to cause a degradation of LDLR. So as it turns out, PCSK9 is going to be associated with macrophage, cholesterol, efflux, apoptosis, and now endothelial cells, which can lead to mitochondrial dysfunction and pro-inflammatory response directly also linked to atherogenesis, okay? So now you understand how this comes together from the liver to the lung cardiovascular system, atherosclerotic plaque. And I'm telling you this whole package is put together into a negative pathophysiology, a high comorbidity leading to cardiovascular and lung disorders. And all of that then will link up to the comorbidity you find in the aging population. Now associate that with casual bacterial or viral pathogenicity, that is the inception of a pathogenic response. And now you see where we're getting to. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now.